Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. We're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. We're going to talk about human rights, refugees, and asylum seekers this morning. It's an important topic that really speaks volumes about the humanity of the people in any nation championing the needs of victims from conflicts. With us today is Dr. Catherine Sickink. Uh, She is the Ryan Family Professor of Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. She holds a Master of Arts and a Doctorate from Columbia University. She's been a Fulbright Scholar in both Argentina and a Guggenheim Fellow. She's a fellow of the American Philosophical Society, the American Association for Arts and Sciences, and the Council on Foreign Relations. She's also a member of the editorial board of the International Studies Quarterly, International Organization, and the American Political Science Review. She's published a number of books on this topic, and we're very excited to welcome her to public or to, to national security this week. Dr. Catherine Sinking, well, Sinking, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you for the invitation. Uh, but you forgot to mention my Minnesota connection. Oh, that's true. That's true. I am wearing my Minnesota T-shirt this morning in the studio just to, to, to honor the fact that you did serve at the University of Minnesota for quite a while. Yes. And I was an undergraduate at the University of Minnesota as well. That I did not know. <laughs> I did not find that in any of your bios that you uh, earned an undergrad degree from the University of Minnesota. Well, you have good roots here in Minnesota. Uh, where are you sitting right now? Are you in your office at Harvard? Is that right? I'm sitting here in my office at the Harvard Kennedy School. Okay. Yes. All right. Well, Dr. Sickink, we, we have a lot to cover this morning. Uh, I really want to tap into your expertise. Uh, let me start with a little bit of background on you. Uh, what brought you to the study of human rights? And could you give our listeners sort of a sense of the journey you've been on in, in championing the study of human rights throughout your career? Yes. Well, my human rights journey began back when I was an undergraduate student at the University of Minnesota. Perfect. <laughs> and I applied for and received a scholarship to study abroad. You know, those are hard to come by scholarships to study abroad. And I wanted to go to a Spanish speaking country. And I was given a scholarship uh, to go to um, Uruguay, the University mm-hmm. of the Republic in Montevideo, Uruguay. Uh, and it was a special student exchange. So we, they sent one student from Minnesota a year to, to Uruguay and brought one student from Uruguay up to the University of Minnesota. Um, and if you'll give me, it was given by an ambassador. The, they were endowed by an ambassador who'd been ambassador Uruguay in the 50s, fell in love with Uruguay and decided to give a uh, endowment to the University of Minnesota, his alma mater, to support exchange. And as you know, we have a Montevideo, Minnesota. We are sister. Uh, Minnesota is a sister state with with uh, Uruguay. And so, but I arrived in Uruguay in 1976, which was the worst year of the Uruguayan dictatorship. And I lived there for a year and studied at the university. And so I uh, the university had been intervened, as they said, by the military. They had removed many professors. They had uh, imprisoned professors in prison. Students, students had been tortured. Um, and so it was a big wake-up experience for me. Uh, and then later, when I came back to Minnesota, I had this uh, a group of Uruguayan uh, students who arrived year after year, and we lived together and made friends. And so I continued that connection. Um, And so I kind of learned as a very young person what it meant to live in a repressive country. But I also got really interested in what I would call the intellectual questions of human rights. And I said, how did Uruguay, which had been democratic, had been one of the most democratic states in Latin America for almost the entire 20th century, 
what went wrong in Uruguay so that they have a brutal dictatorship in 1973? Before I went to Uruguay, there was a New York Times editorial that said, Uruguay, torture chamber of the Americas. You can imagine how my parents felt as I'm going off to study abroad there. Uh, uh, not that I, as an, as an American, was fearful. Right. But um, so that was, that was my early experience that shaped me, both kind of learning the, the, the personal story of people who lived under repression, but also grappling already with the intellectual problems of what led to what leads to repression. And then it was 1976. That was the, um, the year that Carter uh, was campaigning and then was elected. And I found that my Uruguayan friends and colleagues were very, very interested in the debates and in, 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 in the election of Jimmy Carter. They couldn't talk about what was going on in Uruguay. It was totally censored. Right. But they could talk about the U.S. elections. And they talked at length and were big Jimmy Carter supporters. So you know, what I think I hear you saying, I mean, just from my perspective, as somebody who's been in the national security arena for my whole adult life, my career, it's a cautionary tale, Uruguay is, uh, because <laughs> when repression starts, they always attack the, you know, quote unquote, intellectuals. Uh, is that what I is that what I heard you say about what happened to the professors at the universities in, in Uruguay trying to teach their students about these issues? Yes. Yes. Uruguay is a cautionary tale. I would say also it means that we can never be uh, complacent about our democracies. Just because you have a, a democracy for a long time doesn't mean you don't have to defend it against attacks. And so it's a cautionary tale. But I want to say this, it's also a hopeful tale. Yeah. Because Uruguay today is back to being one of the number one democracies in the region. And actually right now on the codes that political scientists do, they rate democracy is giving them numbers. Uruguay is ranking higher than the United States right now. Yep. Yep. Yeah. There are a number of countries out there that are ranking higher than us, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, so mm -hmm. Dr. Sagan, you, you work at sort of the, the intersection of international relations and human rights. Uh, you've done so throughout your career. I have to imagine much of your work revolves around the impact of government actions on people and the tragedies that befall people who are caught in the crossfire of conflict. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the advocacy work you do in this area? Maybe tell us about the organizations with uh, which you collaborate, you know, where you've done your work uh, other than Uruguay, <laughs> and the yeah. impact you've had on people as you champion their, their causes. Yeah. So uh, when I uh, graduated from the University of Minnesota, I was very fortunate to get an, uh, another, in I applied for and I got an, another terrific internship funded by the Ford Foundation. But mm. actually, again, I want to stress this Minnesota link, actually a program that was organized by Professor David Weisbrot, who was a leading professor of national law at the Harvard, excuse me, at the University of Minnesota Law School and a great light who died this last year. And I want to remember again, mm. Professor David Weisbrot's contribution to the entire study of human rights. Anyway, he, he, he funded this, uh, this internship program. They placed me for a year with a very low salary, but more than I'd ever made in my whole life. Uh, at a, a, a human rights group in Washington, D.C. called the Washington Office on Latin America, or WOLA. I worked there as an intern for a year. They asked me to stay on as a staff person, uh, and I stayed on for almost another year. Um, and I worked mainly on human rights in, in Uruguay, where I had lived, but also in art, particularly in Argentina. Uh, that was, uh, in the again, at the, in, in one of the worst parts of the dictatorship there that 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 disappeared and, and imprisoned so many thousands of people. Yeah. Um, and so our work was actually to help receive human rights activists that came from uh, Latin America and help, who wanted to lobby the US government or make contacts with organizations in Washington, DC. Uh, and uh, we, uh, we, we accompanied them, we wrote reports, we lobbied Congress. Uh, and did other. So that was my period of main advocacy work. I met a lot of people in the human rights movement at that time. Um, but and here, if, I would if, say, I could, if I could just ask, in Argentina at that time, the military junta was in power. That was the, the dirty war, they called it, right? And again, they were disappearing college students all across the country who they felt were a threat to the military junta. Is that right? Exactly. So the, the military junta was in power from 1976 to 19. 
uh, you know, some, uh, some uh, 20, more than 20,000 people were uh, in, illegally imprisoned, tortured and killed. Um, and they targeted, yes, the young, they targeted also workers uh, um, and uh, any uh, uh, dissidents of, of, of all types. So. so that was something you were directly dealing with in that Washington office for Latin America. Right. Yeah. So I met I met people who came from the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, people who came mm -hmm. from the, the the grandmothers, the abuelas de la Plaza de Mayo, uh, who who came to talk about their disappeared children and and grandchildren at a time when they still hoped that those children would and grandchildren were alive. Today we know that almost all the disappeared were killed. Yeah. Uh, could you continue on a little bit with your your journey in this world? Uh, what what brought you to earning a master's and doctorate and pursuing these topics uh, professionally uh, all the time? Yeah. So I was going to say when you asked about my advocacy work, I was going to say what I discovered at WOLA was that I completely was fascinated and impressed by the advocacy work that was being done, but that I myself was not cut out for it. Oh. <laughs> okay. okay? <laughs> Uh, why? Because I had this researcher in me mm. and I kept saying, you know, do you think we should do a little more research on this? Uh, and advocates don't always have time for, uh, they have time for the research about what's happening on the ground. You know, what's happening with terms of people imprisoned or disappeared, getting to the bottom of the human stories. But they don't have the time to ask those questions that already I was concerned with. Why do we get dictatorships? What kinds of action help most, are most effective in contributing to improvements in human rights? There was just a notion we should do these things. We should write letters. We should cut military aid. We should cut economic aid. But if you said, do we know if cutting economic aid really improves human rights? Um, people weren't set up to answer that. And I was interested in it. And I discovered that I wasn't a good, I didn't have the temperament. For, for lobbying. Mm. I don't like to market anything, even ideas. Uh, and I, but I did have the temperament uh, to research. And I was able all these years then to stay in contact with people in the human rights movement and try to do research that would answer their questions that they didn't have time to do. Um, now, I didn't design the research with them, mm -hmm. okay? I more kind of knew what the questions were and tried to design research that would be of interest to my colleagues but all, and to our skeptics, but also would be of use to the human rights movement. Did you find that policymakers would listen to the research that you, can, that you did? I mean, the results of your research, did, did that matter to them, to policymakers? Sometimes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Some policymakers. So, for example, uh, you know, one of my more most important findings uh, uh, is that oh, that's been I've established over very many years. I created a database. I brought a team is that human rights prosecutions holding state officials accountable for past human rights violation is associated with improvements in human rights. OK, and. So I have deep faith in accountability, not just because people morally should be held accountable, but also because accountability works in deterring future human rights violations. That is interesting. Well, we, and, and I want to get into some of that as we go through the, our, our show today. Uh, Dr. Singh, I, I myself was stationed aboard USS Ranger off the coast of Somalia in December of 1992 uh, when the United Nations initiated Operation Restore Hope. Uh, we put... Uh, Marines ashore to sort of stabilize the situation in uh, Mogadishu and at the Mogadishu International Airport, uh, put the airport back into operation so immediately relief flights could start coming in. You may recall, our listeners may recall, for those old enough to remember, <laughs> that there was a tremendous famine going on uh, in the country at the time, it was, and it was really exacerbated by the fact that uh, food had become a weapon. Uh, the different uh, clans that were fighting over control of Somalia at the time were using what little food aid had gotten into the country, uh, actually taking control of that food and only feeding their own groups. I was also on the ground in East Timor a year after the Indonesian military 
and the West Timorese militias left the newly independent country, and they took literally just about everything that people had uh, away when they when they left the country. I saw exposed plumbing where toilets and sinks had literally been ripped out of houses just to punish the East Timorese people for wanting a return to autonomy and 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 freedom from uh, from Jakarta. So with that in mind, in your experience, and as you've studied this right now, what are the two or three worst situations that you've seen out there in the world? And maybe maybe not just right now, but in your experience, what are the two or three worst places that you've seen, the worst human rights abuses? Right. So uh, as I've explained, I have had more involvement in Latin America than other parts of the world. I speak Spanish, I speak Portuguese, and I have traveled there almost every year since I was in Uruguay. So um, uh, so uh, I already spoke about a, uh, a country that has been formative for all of my own thoughts, and that is Argentina. It was formative not only because of the scale of the repression, but also because of the innovations and the activism that I saw in, in Argentina. So they had the first truth commission in the really one of the first major truth commissions in the world. They had one of the first trials of their leaders, the trials of the juntas in 1985. I was living in Argentina in 1985 doing dissertation research. And these amazing trials were going on where the nine, three junta members of three junta members of three juntas, nine leaders were being held accountable. By the way, there's a new feature film coming out on Netflix on that very topic of the trials of the juntas. Mm. It's called Argentina 1985. I've seen the trailer. I really suggest that people uh, watch for it because it looks like an excellent film that tells that story of the trials. Um, so, but, and then more, more, somewhat more recently, but still quite a bit in the past, the, 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 mo, the, the, the only real genocide in Latin America, I don't use the word casually, yeah. was Guatemala in the mm. 1980s, where, uh, where up to 200, thousand people were killed in the civil war uh, entire mayan villages uh, were destroyed uh, the um and so it's called a genocide because people were being targeted by virtue of their uh, ethnic identity as as mayans um and so i followed the guatemala case very carefully as well um so so those are the ones that have been personally important to me but i have studied human rights in the world and I often try to contrast why it is that's that terrible uh, situations, let's say the genocide in Cambodia, right. was almost forgotten. It was going on at the same time. Argentina drew the attention of the world. And the Cambodians were almost forgotten initially because neither, of course, China <laughs> blocked attention to the Khmer Rouge. The Khmer Rouge were their, their uh, um, you know, client state. And the United States, for its own reasons, having to do with Vietnam, blocked attention to the Khmer Rouge. And so I'm, I'm interested both in the situations I know well, like Archie and Guatemala, and in contrasting the situations that were in, in, in absolute numbers worse, like Cambodia, that didn't get the attention they deserved. Yeah. Now, but John, I want to ask you a question. And by the <laughs> way, I hope you'll call me Catherine, because I'm going to call you John. Okay. I want to ask you a question, John, about your experience. And that is, uh, both of these uh, U.S. missions that you were on were connected to broader U.N. missions. Yeah. And I wonder if you would talk what, what it was like to be part of this, uh, you know, what's the legitimacy of one of these multilateral uh, uh, um, missions like you were involved in. And particularly because nowadays with, with uh, you know, in the world, we see with unilateral uh, 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 invasion like that of, of Russia, um, uh, I think it's important to talk about, you know, the difference between a multilateral mission and a unilateral one. Yeah, and I would say if we want to return back to the uh, situation in Somalia, uh, that was a decision made by uh, President George H.W. Bush. He was under tremendous pressure uh, from a lot of different quarters to do something about uh, the situation in Somalia. Uh, we happened to be, my carrier battle group happened to be the closest one to the to the tragedy, and so we were assigned to go in and provide protection for the Marine uh, Amphibious Ready Group uh, that went ashore uh, in Somalia. Now, that was initially a unilateral mission, but it was very quickly followed up by a United Nations uh, collaborative effort to go in and, and try and rebuild the country. Uh, and, and President Bush had lost the election uh, in, in uh, November to uh, Bill Clinton in 92. 
So that transition of administrations saw a very different uh, approach to how the U United States would support the United Nations effort in Somalia. Uh, the, the situation in East Warren was a little bit different. Uh, when I was there, it was already a UN operation. Uh, the Australians were leading that effort, actually, and we we didn't really play any any part of the mission in the in the peacekeeping side and keeping that border between East and West Timor secure. That was up to the UN contingent that was there, led by Australia. But we were in there doing community relations projects. We went in and uh, we had I was part of an amphibious ready group at that time, and we went the Marines and and some of our sailors went ashore and helped. Uh, build and repaint and remodel uh, schools and some clinics, medical clinics and some other things, uh, just to help the people of East Timor get back on their feet. It was a really different experience uh, seeing uh, the sort of the UN command structure led by the Aussies uh, in how they managed the security situation. And it was, I mean, the country was sort of on the path towards rebuilding. Uh, if I could, Dr. Uh, Catherine, sorry, Catherine, I'll go back. Uh, oh, you have a follow-up question. Go ahead. Follow-up question. I, I'm, I'm losing control uh, of my interview. <laughs> speaking of feature films, yep. you were in Somalia right around the time of the events that led to the film Black Hawk Down. That happened about a year after I was there, yeah. So Okay. So can I just briefly ask you to comment on on many many of your listeners may have seen that film or may want to see that film yeah that i mean it is a it's based on a, a really well done book uh on that topic i would tell you that uh, there's a couple of things that i think we learned from a un slash u.s uh command and control perspective uh, we had actually allowed U.S. forces to be placed under a U.N. command structure, uh, under the command of foreign military leaders. Uh, but there was an, a U.S.-only component that was in there operating, and that was the component that was assigned, assigned to go after uh, capturing uh, Mohammed Farah Aidid's lieutenants, uh, with the idea that if we could ca capture them, we could force him to the bargaining table and try and create some sort of a, uh, a political solution to the warring factions in Mogadishu. And uh, things did not go quite as planned. And because uh, parts of the U.S. forces and U.N. forces were under a different commanding general from a different country, I think it was a Pakistani general, but I'm not 100% sure because I wasn't actually there myself. But it was a very difficult proposition to organize the forces to go in and pull those American forces out who had been trapped in, in some of the areas of downtown Mogadishu for that, for that firefight. But I think what we learned from that, frankly, is that it's nation building is a very, very difficult proposition. And if you don't know how to do it, you probably shouldn't challenge yourself with that task. And putting the military in charge is not the right way to do it. The military has a very specific function in every nation in the world. And frankly, you need to have political solutions before you—I uh, mean, you can, ha you can use the military to achieve— military objectives that set conditions, but then the diplomats and the political leadership has to achieve their end of the deal. That's what I would say. Okay. So, and again, I don't mean to get this off track, <laughs> but I do think that it's important to draw on some of your expertise too, because we're facing these nation building questions. We are. Of course, we face them then in Afghanistan. Yep. And there's been a lot of criticism of what happened in terms of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, but then this is, I'm stating my personal opinion here. I don't know what you would say. I personally think the United States should have left Afghanistan much sooner because once that the military phase of initially <laughs> defeating the, the Taliban and getting at least uh, Al-Qaeda on, on, on Osama bin Laden on the run, um, if we had uh, left earlier, uh, thing. You know, it's not clear what, that the situation uh, would have resulted as it has today. So that's my that's my, the question I would ask again: is if the t if we take your nation building point one step further, uh, should we have learned from Somalia and not dug in, uh, gotten in so deep to nation building Afghanistan? Well, I mean, Somalia was a great example. Uh, Bosnia is another one. I mean, that's still. I mean, it's somewhat resolved, but really, it's not resolved in the Balkans. That's still a, a challenge. Uh, Afghanistan. I would tell you this: Afghanistan is still not "quote unquote" done. Uh, history never stops creating itself, right? So we have no idea what's actually going to happen in Afghanistan right now. It's again at a low point under the control of the Taliban again, 
but we'll see how it, uh, what history decides is going to happen in Afghanistan. We're, we're going to see what happens in Ukraine, right? I mean, and I'd like to w- talk more a little bit about that in a minute. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Catherine Sickink from the Harvard Kennedy School, and we're discussing refugees, human rights, and related topics. Uh, Catherine, uh, let's go ahead and talk about Ukraine. I think it's important that we, we, we hit on that. Uh, we're almost six months into Russia's uh, invasion. Uh, Russia continues to support Bashar al-Assad in Syria, and Russian forces and, and Russia's private military contractor, the Wagner Group, were used extensively to punish civilians in the Syrian civil war. Uh, we also see Wagner operatives in nations across Africa doing dirty work for would-be dictators or governments seeking assistance from Moscow. Uh, can you pro- provide your thoughts on the role Russia is playing right now in this intersection of conflict, human rights, refugees, and, and linked topics? Right. Um, well, first, I do think that I agree with you that there have been deeply problematic Russian involvement in cases such as Syria and elsewhere, okay, especially with regard to war crimes. But as someone who works a lot on international law, I think it's important to distinguish what Russia is doing right now in Ukraine, right, uh, from some of its other actions. Not because the other actions are, uh, are, are unproblematic, they're not, but just because there's sort of a different level of violation of international law that's going on right now. Right. by the Russians by invading Ukraine is a a completely illegal uh, operation under international law, international law since the interwar period, interwar between World War I and World War II period has been uh, 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 trying to, um, uh, it's been trying to abolish these kind of invasions. Okay. They actually have become less common. Right. Uh, The, and, um, and so just, again, if I may take a slight digression, a little, a little known fact that I have researched is that the, the, we're condemning Russia right now for aggression. The legal definition of aggression comes from a Soviet statesman, Maxim <laughs> Lit, Litvinov. Maxim oh, yeah. Litvinov was Stalin's Minister of Foreign Affairs. And, 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 you know, 19, and he wrote in 1933 a definition of, address, uh, of aggression. Of course, the Soviet Union in 1933 was very worried about being a victim of aggression, so they, it was in their interest to write a definition. They wrote a definition, and they signed treaties with all of their neighbors uh, uh, to uh, not have aggression. Well, that uh, that definition went into a UN General Assembly definition in 1974, and now is very close to the definition that's in the International Criminal Court. So anyone, you know, when Russia sort of goes like, who, you know, we're not breaking international law. They completely are breaking national law. They completely know they're breaking national law. And we can tell so by the definition they wrote in 1933. <laughs> um, and they wrote a definition that would have prohibited their armed bans in 2014 uh, in Crimea and in Eastern one. It didn't just say you can't you know, roll your, tr- your, your uh, tanks across borders into an independent country. It also said you can't send in these kind of bans, illegal bans, and support these illegal bans that they did. So one, we have a complete violation of national law here, and it's in in that situation, it's very uh, it, it's very appropriate that the sanctions are being used um, uh, by the international community. The Security Council is completely blocked. Of course, Russia is right. using its veto to block it. Right. But right. Uh, but the General Assembly using an old resolution that goes back to Korea. There's something called the Uniting for Peace Resolution. And that is when the General Assembly is stymied, excuse me, when the Security Council is stymied and can't act, the, the General Assembly can act. And they have acted, condemned Russia, and, and uh, supported sanctions and called on member states to support sanctions. So we have a, like the highest level violation of law going on here. The case in Syria is a lot more complicated. Why? Because while the Syrians, it was Russian support, and the Russians were committing war crimes, this, the Syrians were invited in by the sovereign government of Syria. And, un, uh, you know, f- uh, fortunately or unfortunately, under national law, sovereign governments get to invite whoever they want to help them. That's right. why the sovereign government of Ukraine 
right now is inviting the whole uh, <laughs> allied uh, you know, world to help them because that's what governments get to do under national law. So the Syrian question is a bit more complicated for us. War crimes have been committed. They can be prosecuted for war crimes, but it's not as easy. Uh, 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 it's not as easy to do to get access, let's say, as we have in the Ukrainian case where the Ukrainians have referred their case to the International Criminal Court for prosecution. Yeah, and, and from what I've seen on the TV and what I've read uh, on news reports, the Ukrainian government is uh, is really doing their very best to document every one of the war crimes that they can investigate and find evidence for and forwarding that on to the international body. So going back to what you said earlier in our discussion this morning, you said that one of the most effective ways to you know, prevent human rights abuses is to hold people accountable. Uh, I think that's really what uh, the Ukrainian government and, and really all of Europe uh, and the liberal democracies in the world uh, are trying to do with Russia with this idea of holding them accountable for war crimes. Yes, that's why I'm very supportive of efforts to uh, collect the evidence that we need for prosecutions. There are prosecutions already occurring uh, in, in Ukraine. The, uh, um, and then a whole series of issues are raised then about which, you know, which are crimes that, that you can prosecute soldiers for or their immediate commanders and which are crimes that you could hold Putin or his high command. Um, and, uh, and that's been a complicated issue in, in, in war crimes prosecutions always. Um, and there's some dispute here. I think the first, the first prosecution was a soldier, the first person convicted was a soldier mm -hmm. who had coordinates, who sent a bomb, and it turned out to be a civilian center. And the question is, did, who gave him the coordinates? Right. Did he know? Did he know that that was civilians? And so some people have said, well, let's focus on the crime of aggression because we know Putin is responsible for that one. <laughs> or for, uh, certain things like forced deportations, you know, right. the, the forced movement that it's clearly that was a part of the master strategy that Putin outlined. So all of these, the, that, that can be in certain circumstances, a crime against humanity, these kinds of forced uh, deportations. The the Myanmar government is being prosecuted by the National Criminal Court right now for, for the forced deportation of the Rohingya. Yep. And that crime, the ICC got uh, jurisdiction because they, it, Bangladesh is a member of the ICC, is a state party, and they considered that the crime of forced deportations was continuing onto the territory of Bangladesh since the, the, the forcibly deported had arrived on the, uh, in Bangladesh. So. So it's, there's a big, I completely endorse accountability and I endorse rule of law, which means due process. and means you need to take these cases one by one and decide whether, uh, you know, you, who's, who's guilty and of what crime. I, I want to ask two quick follow-up questions on the Russia-Ukraine situation. Uh, in, in your research, is it more effective to hold political and military leadership accountable for these issues? Or is it, I mean, is there going to be any positive uh, effect of, in holding some of these Russian conscripts uh, accountable for their actions on the battlefield? I, I have to think holding the political and military leadership of Russia accountable in the international system is going to be more effective as a deterrent uh, globally for this kind of behavior. Is that, do I have that right? We actually have gotten the data to the level where we, we code by whether they're high level or low level prosecutions, you know, so high level means, uh, you know, not just presidents, right, but it can mean, of course, generals or other people in charge mm -hmm. uh, of making versus low level. Um, and we the, the single most important factor is the number of prosecutions. Okay, but then once you have a big enough number, then high level prosecutions have a bigger effect than low-level prosecutions. However, uh, it's not clear that low-level prosecutions are themselves insignificant. And the re you know, we don't know the reason for that. And it's interesting, but you know, it could be that you know, when, you know, when a general is prosecuted, your ordinary soldier thinks, well, nothing to do with me. And when an ordinary soldier is prosecuted, the soldiers may go, oh no, I, you know, I could be next. I've got I've to take seriously things like the laws of war do not require, in fact, they, they, they encourage soldiers to 
I'm not saying this right. Soldiers are not required to obey illegal orders. Correct. That's a crucial part of the laws of war. And soldiers don't want to have to make that decision. You can maybe, John, you can answer. Soldiers <laughs> really don't want to be stuck in the battlefield trying to decide whether they've just been given an illegal order or not. Yeah, that, and that, so it's just better to assume that all orders are legal because you could be court-martialed if you just be an order. Yeah. Um, but if you see your fellow soldiers getting prosecuted, you might think twice and say, maybe I should think about not obeying illegal orders. Yeah, yeah that, that, that is a, a very complex question and, and discussion topic. The other thing that I want to ask about the Russia situation uh, we have you. You mentioned the def the forced deportations of people out uh, Ukrainians out of some of these contested areas in the Donbas region, but now you've also had statements out of uh, you know the Duma, the Russian uh, legislature, uh, national legislature, and and even from some of the senior leadership, political leadership in Russia. I don't know if I've heard Putin say it directly, but. There's basically been threats to wipe out the very culture of Ukraine, and now they're talking about removing the government of Ukraine in its entirety. Are, are these statements, these actions starting to border on, on what we would call almost genocide or certainly crimes against humanity? I mean, are we approaching that level with Russia right now? Um, well, let me just say one of the most worrisome things uh, I've heard. So there's a very big difference in the deportations. I mean, there's the refugees flowing into Western Europe, yeah. and then there are forced deportations of Back to Russia taken to these uh, camps. What are they called? Diffusion camps? No, they're called them. Um, the name uh, camps in Russia. And mm -hmm. not only that, there's a very troublesome issue around children. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you and your 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 uh, listeners have heard about, but. Um, D disabled children in Ukraine were st were still mainly institutionalized rather than kept with their families. And quite a few of these institutions were in the eastern part. Uh, and when the caregivers left, some of them, and they had a lot of trouble trying to get these disabled children uh, home uh, safe. And the Russians did uh, also take quite a few children out of disabled children and sent them to Russia. And in a few cases, we have heard that those children are being put up for adoption. And those are children that have parents, Ukrainian parents, mm. uh, but they're being put up for adoption in Russia uh, despite that. Now, so there are things that are starting to uh, border on trying to destroy Ukrainian culture. Now, the issue here is that as ethnic groups, okay, now the, it's the only major difference that the Ukrainians have with the Russians is language. Right. They share a religion. They're not a different race. Right. Okay. So, so it's hard to say destroying. How do you destroy Ukrainian culture when they have this? They share a similar uh, orthodox. I mean, there's Ukrainian Orthodox and Russian Orthodox, but the Russian Orthodox are operating in Ukraine. Yeah. They share a similar religion. Uh, they share a similar uh, a culture. They are not racially different, but they have different languages. Yeah. It's a complex issue. Uh, this brings me to another question. I mean, we've been skirting around this. I'd like to dive into this a little bit more if I could. Uh, there is, in fact, a large body of global treaties, standards, and norms with regards to human rights law, how refugees should be treated and supported, and, and many other agreements. Can you give us just kind of a quick, short summary of some of the more important frameworks uh, most of the world uses to handle uh, refugees in times of crisis, uh, and perhaps how human rights should be viewed considering international legal precedent. Okay. So, as you said, it's a huge framework, and so I'm not going to even begin to give you all the details of human rights law, which is huge. Yeah, maybe but just the point, high points, the, the really yeah, important the one things. One thing I want to make is that in some, in some law schools, they teach refugee and migrant law in an entirely different class than they teach human rights law. Okay, and so generally, refugee and human rights, refugee and migrant law is a separate body of law from human rights law. Now, refugees and migrants also are persons with human rights. Okay, so refugees and migrants are entitled to the rights that are in human rights law, uh, but when we're talking about them, them uh, crossing borders then they, there's a new body of law called a refugee and migrant law. Why is that? Because human rights law includes the right to leave your own country. Everyone has the right to leave their own country. It does not include the right to enter the country of your choice. Mm -hmm. If you go through human rights law, you will not find that people have a right to 
to, they, they have a right to enter any country of their choice. That remains back when the sovereign, it's a sovereign decision of countries. And he, the countries were made sure that human rights law didn't give people a right to enter their countries without the control. Okay, so that's why the whole new body of law is created refugee law and migrant law. Refugee law is very specific that it's about a, a, the re definition of refugee is someone who faces a well-grounded fear of persecution well-grounded fear of persecution. So that doesn't cover most of the people in the world on the move today, okay? And so that's why people have tried to, in the refugee law in 1951, okay, it was, it was draft, the convention was drafted only for European refugees. Mm. And not until 1967 was the, the refugee convention updated for the whole world, okay? Uh, and, but it's never been changed to expand the definition of refugee. So, just because you have a war in your country and you're leaving does not make you a refugee, okay? And that's, um, we use those words casually, but legally, <laughs> legally it's never been expanded. My students always want us to open up the refugee convention and renegotiate so things like war uh, and other persecution counts. But everyone involved in this area knows that if you open up the refugee convention, it could probably get worse rather than better. Oh, yeah, There's yeah. such hostility to refugees today that no one dares to try to open the refugee convention. Well, and so you, and you had we mentioned have other conventions like migrant conventions who are people who move across borders for other reasons other than having a well-grounded fear of persecution, okay? And those treaties, that treaty, there's only 57 countries of the world that have ratified the Convention on Migrant Workers and Their Families, and none of them are migrant-receiving countries or were migrant-receiving countries when they ratified so your expertise has been uh, really in the Spanish-speaking world, uh, Central and South America. Uh, we do know that we have lots of, I think, refugees fleeing out of some of the violence in Central American countries trying to make it to America, uh, mm -hmm. coming across the border, transiting through Mexico, and then coming across the U.S. border. Do they qualify legally speaking as refugees? Uh, are they, How many of them— could be considered asylum seekers? And, and what is the legal definition of who qualifies for actual asylum uh, under these under these legal ramifications, legal, legal uh, frameworks? Well, first, people, are, the notion of asylum is, but the notion of asylum is simply connected to the notion of refugees, okay? okay. So an asylum seeker is simply someone who arrives at your border and asks to be considered uh, to uh, as a refugee. Okay, so it's just, asylum seekers have the same definition as refugees. They face a well-grounded fear of persecution. Now, many asylum seekers out of, and you didn't mention Venezuela, but the biggest migrant move in Latin, in Latin America today are Venezuelans. Yeah. You know, at one point, the Venezuelans were the second biggest move in the world after the Syrians coming into Europe. The, the, and all sorts of migrants have moved out of Venezuela all throughout Latin America. So I was in Uruguay not long ago. It's full of Venezuelans. The, Uruguay, the, they, the Venezuelans have gone to Colombia, Ecuador, all the way down into Peru and Chile and around to Argentina and, uh, mm. and even Uruguay. So there's huge migrant flows. The, it's, we don't hear about it because the Latin Americans have been doing pretty good, pretty well with that. And uh, there is a there's a declaration, Latin America called the Cartagena Declaration, that has a broader definition of refugees not, than, than the Refugee Convention. And the Latin Americans seem to be kind of a little more open. These are people, of course, mainly well-educated people who speak mainly the same language, right? And that helps uh, with these refugee flows. Now, the refugees coming to the United States are coming, as you said, from uh, Honduras, from Guatemala, from Mexico. Some of those individuals do face a well-grounded fear of persecution and can be uh, can can and should receive refugee status, um, and some have. Okay. But uh, some um, do not fit the narrow definition of refugee. And that's the problem that's going on. And what, but what I said is they, those people still have human rights. So you can't do things to them that violate the rights of the border. You can deny them entry to the United States under the Refugee Convention. You can do that, okay? But you can't uh, separate their children from them. You can't hold them in, 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 in inhumane conditions indefinitely. Uh, Etc. So part of what's going on is kind of sorting out uh, what constitutes human rights violations at the U.S. border, which are occurring and which have to stop, okay, versus uh, uh, moving to saying 
the you know human rights law or refugee law requires the United States to re to accept all those refugees because it's simply you know read the law. I have my students say read the refugee convention, okay, and then come back and we'll talk about it. But what so I'm you know part of my role as a teacher is to say I wish that we had a better definition of refugee law. Okay, I wish we had it. I think we should have a better definition of what's a refugee. Now there's even discussion of climate change refugees. Right. Okay. Uh, but right now we don't. And this has not been a good time for getting better law. Yeah. Okay. So we have to take a quick break. For our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Catherine Sickink from the Harvard Kennedy School, and we're discussing refugees, human rights, and related topics. Uh, uh, Catherine, uh, can you tell us, uh, we have about 15 minutes left, unfortunately. This show has just flown by. It's amazing. Can you tell us about some of the organizations out there in the world that are doing some really great work in the area of championing human rights? I've heard mixed reviews, frankly, about Amnesty International, but it seems they vocalize some of the strongest condemnations of horrific actions on the part of governments against targeted peoples. Uh, what, what organizations do you think people should know about and the good work that they're doing? Um, so one, I think, you know, Amnesty International has had ups and downs. It had, has had some uh, problems with leadership, but Amnesty International is one of the great membership human rights organizations in the world. They're a membership organization. So really they have, uh, they have members in countries all around the world. The members are involved in making decisions about, uh, about leadership and making decisions about priorities. Uh, and so they're really a constituency-based organization, and that's important. Um, uh, the Human Rights Watch is another important organization. They are not a constituent, not a membership organization. They have lots of donors, but not real constituents. They're, ex you know, when I, they're extremely good for their reports and their information. Uh, so uh, I, I follow Human Rights Watch carefully because I, I, I trust their research very much and their expertise. Uh, I mean, Amnesty also has good reports. Um, and uh, I wanted to just uh, recommend to your readers that if you want a good blog, I think one of the best blogs on human is called Open Global Rights. Uh, and originally it was at the University of Minnesota, actually, that's why I knew about it. And now it's being run by a, Col a, a Colombian organization called Just Labs. Uh, but it has contributions from people all over the world. It's one of the most international of the blogs, and they translate into multiple languages. And so, uh, you know, I've written for them, for example, and then they'll translate in Spanish and Portuguese. Uh, I um, and uh, and they they solicit uh, blogs from people all over the world and then translate them. So that's a great. The big debates, the big human rights debates, are being are being uh, debated and discussed on open global, open global rights. Um, on some of these Ukraine issues, another good blog is one called Just Security. It comes out, and this will interest you in particular, John, given the topic of this thing. It's 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 edited out of uh, NYU Law School, and all the big debates about war, what's a war crime. This kind of war, debates about war crimes, who can be prosecuted, who can't be prosecuted, etc. Those are happening by some of the top lawyers in this country mm. and abroad uh, on just security, and that's where my blog piece was published on the Litvinov Treaty. In fact. Um, so, but then the other thing is there are uh, good regional uh, organizations uh, as well. And so, you know, because I worked on Latin America, I today, I still get in the, the publications uh, from the office I worked at, the Washington Office on Latin America, still doing great work in DC, as is the Latin American uh, Working Group log. And so those are two places I'm on their mailing list and I read their stuff. They do very, well, Walla and Log are both doing very good work about at the border for example, and, and I, I trust their advocacy and work on the border, okay? Now, they, they wouldn't say what I just said about necessarily about, uh, about the, the laws, right? But that's because, you know, their, their job is to be good advocates. They're great advocates. You know, my job is to try to, you know, uh, try to um, teach my students about the letter of the law, sure. which isn't always as flexible as some people would like to be. I noticed okay. you didn't mention the International Committee of the Red Cross. Is that, uh, 
What do you think about it? The International Committee of the Red Cross is at an entirely different level. In other words, they're they're a hybrid, uh, almost in, they are an international organization, but they're they're not they're they're independent. And so they're they're sort of something between an international organization and a civil society organization. And uh, they have a special role with regard to the laws of war, which they help write and they help enforce, right? And so they're, they're an extremely important organization. They've had, again, they've had their troubles over the years, but I, I, you know, I believe deeply in the work they're doing and think that then, because why? They have to be neutral, yeah, okay? Right. So sometimes people don't like it because they have to get access and to get access, they have to always be try to be neutral. So, uh, so they can't be advocates in the same way a civil society group would because they lose their uh, neutrality. But within that, they do excellent work. Yeah. Uh, there are also people out there, individuals, I'm sure that you are familiar with, who have been just tremendous champions on human rights issues. Is there anybody you'd like to mention specifically? We had on the show a little while ago, uh, Nuri Turkel. You probably have heard of, of him and the work he's been doing uh, uh, on uh, religious liberty around the world and, and specifically focusing on China. Are, are there other people that you'd like our listeners to know about uh, and the work that they're doing? Yes. Um, one of the people I most admire is an Indian a, a scholar, activist, uh, really in the tradition of Gandhi, mm. okay, uh, whose name is Harsh Mander, Harsh Mander. And he uh, was the director of the Center for Equity Studies and the founder of a campaign for secularism, peace, and justice, okay? But he, did, he was doing, he was very, very worried, of course, about Hindu-Muslim uh, conflict, in particular, Hindu violence, against Muslims, uh, the kinds of lynchings that were going on. And he actually had a caravan for peace, I think he called it, uh, where he, he had a caravan around the country where he went to meet with the families of the lynched uh, Muslim victims of mm. Hindu, Hindu mobs. He himself is Hindu, mm. okay? Mm. This is why I make the comparison to Gandhi because, uh, and he met with, with these families of victims and no one was meeting with these families. They were scared, everyone was scared it was the families because they feel that they themselves would become victims of, of lynching. Uh, and uh, it was extremely courageous work he was doing and he eventually had to leave India. And so he is right now, I believe in Germany. Mm. So it's very, there's a lot of things that are happening where these, these uh, incredible leaders are having to leave. My other favorite, this is the only time in the interview you're going to get me to cheer up, okay? Because when I think about this, uh, these people who are, who are really putting their lives on the line and how often they, they have to sacrifice things. So I want to talk about another person who's like my, I, my, some person I have the deepest regrets about is the Turkish the uh, group of Turkish activists who are in prison and have been in prison for many years in Turkey for a nonviolent protest against uh, a Gezi at Gezi Park in center Istanbul. Uh, they were, you know, the, the, the uh, Erdogan government was trying to build a great big shopping center in this. And they, so they, that member, you saw the pictures of the standing man. You remember mm -hmm. the standing man? That person was in uh, this Gezi protest. They, they, they couldn't do or say anything. So they just would go and stand. Okay. And th these people were, uh, uh, there was a later coup attempt by somebody, completely other groups. And these people were then arrested for treason for be supporting the coup attempt and they are still in jail and there's you know they've got lawyers people keep trying everyone keeps going to the trials there's no been no flexibility Erdogan is is complete as a complete authoritarian and these are again these are intellectuals this is a guy who led a global civics a global civics academy Hakam Altine his name is Hakan Altine and he and I you know we've written letters we've tried to do and we just makes you feel entirely helpless of the suffering that's going on for the mere statement of ideas. Yeah, the uh, the the half-hearted, almost ridiculously incompetent coup attempt that took place in Turkey a few years ago. Uh, political leadership in Turkey used that as a as a justification to try and eliminate an awful lot of uh, uh, political opposition 
uh, inside the nation. Uh, Catherine Sicking, we, we've covered a lot of ground today. We just have a few minutes left. It's uh, six minutes left on the show. What didn't I ask you today that I should have asked you? I mean, what topics linked to human rights or conflict zones, action by gov- actions by governments around the world, didn't we cover that you think must be brought to the attention of our listeners? And then I also want to ask you about any of the books that you've written that you think uh, would really be helpful for people to read uh, to better understand this topic. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to help fold those two questions into one because the topic I want to talk about that you didn't ask me about is uh, a stuff material that's been covered in my book uh, that's called Evidence for Hope. It was published in 2017. Um, and I wrote that for an academic, but also for a general audience. And I wrote it partly for human rights activists of the kind I've just mentioned, okay? But the people all over the world are constantly, when I meet them, they tell me I'm losing hope. Mm. You know, I, I start with an activist in Egypt, you know, who was really involved in the protests and the transition there and then later had to leave or uh, activists in Brazil who are very discouraged. And so the reason uh, I do two things, I try to talk about all my research over many, many years about the legitimacy and the effectiveness of human rights. Okay. And both of those are important for activists because sometimes their legitimacy is called into question. Okay, so this whole thing that's going on in India and Turkey and things, it's called, we call closing space for civil society. The government is calling human rights activists foreign agents. Right. Because they receive money from foreign foundations. The Ford Foundation, you know, Soros, heaven forbid, you know, they say that they're they're foreign agents practically engaged in treason because they're talking about human rights. And they harass them, and they prosecute them, they throw them in jail. Um uh, but people in, in those societies have kind of started to believe that maybe the human rights is not legitimate because it's from the global north imposed upon the global no- south without any participation. Mm. Uh, so one of, the first thing I do in this book is just talk about the history of human rights. And I want to say this because can I, can I call out your brother here, John? Sure, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> John's brother, Doug Olson, was my student at the University of Minnesota many, many years ago, and he did research with me on the history of human rights. And one of the things we, we learned then that I've learned even more since is that people from all over the world were involved in drafting the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Okay, we hear Eleanor Roosevelt was involved, but people from all over the world were involved and people from India, Latin Americans were deeply involved in creating these documents. These are global documents and countries all over the world have ratified these treaties ever since. These are not an invention of Jimmy Carter that was imposed on the rest of the world. That's secondly, it's about the effectiveness, human rights, law, institutions and movements have been effective in improving human rights. So today people feel despair. They feel that things are so terrible and we need to continue to emphasize, as the human rights does, let's talk about all the bad things happening in the world, okay? But we don't always talk about the improvements that have happened. I'm sorry, but there's less war despite Ukraine. There's less war in the international war in the world than ever before. No one knows that. People think there's more war than ever before. There are in many, many types of human rights violations, let's say gender, uh, rights, there have been dramatic advances in equality of women around the world. Um, and people fear that if we stress the positive, we'll be complacent. But I fear something else. And that is, if we only stress the negative, we despair and we think nothing works. Okay, so we have to, and this is the, per, the, the, the main point of evidence for hope, is we have to have anger, of course, And to have anger, we have to know about ongoing abuses and want to do something. But but anger alone will burn you out. It doesn't sustain you over time. So you also need hope and knowledge about what works so you can sustain your activism. And you need this belief that you can make a difference. Uh, And so the book is designed to present the best research about what has made a difference and what we continue to do in the future. so I hope it will be of, and I tell, I tell a bunch of stories too, about, about these kind of courageous people that we've talked about around the world. Could you say the title of that book again? It's called Evidence for Hope, Making Human Rights Work in the 21st Century. So Evidence for Hope, that's the key words to look up on, uh, on Amazon Books, is that right? 
or your local bookstore. Who knows? You can ask them to order it for you. <laughs> Dr. Catherine Sinking, thank you, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, the, unfortunately, we're, we've come to the end of today's edition of uh, National Security This Week. I think what I have learned listening to you today is that uh, the United States, if we want to return to being the beacon of hope and freedom for the world, we need to get back to championing the issue of human rights on a global scale. Is that right? Yes. All right. I learned my lesson from the professor this morning. Any other resources you want to pass on to our guests before we, or to our listeners before we conclude the show? Um, well, again, in Evidence for Hope, I have in the back of that, I have a recommendation for further reading. Perfect. And I suggest, I suggest uh, websites as well that uh, have like Gap Finder website that is gives you or our world in data that give you that's that are support the kind of arguments I've been making about uh, progress in the world. That's what we like to hear. Uh, data driven, uh, good public policy, right? <laughs> that's what we're always asking exactly. for. That's what yep. policymakers should be relying on. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Sicking. Uh, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.